electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Dominic Hewen for Scott Wapner. It's the last week of a volatile month and quarter as well. Stocks retesting their June lows. So how much lower can this market go from here? Are we close to a tradable bottom? Maybe that's in sight. It's been in sight for a while. We'll debate that and what to do with your money coming up next. Our investment committee today is Bryn Talkington, Jason Snipe, Joe Terranova, and joining me on set here, it's comfortable, Jim, across from each other, Jim Labenthal. So let's get a check on the markets right now. The S&P and the NASDAQ trying, trying the key operative word to snap a four-day losing streak. The S&P is on pace for one of its worst month-to-date performances in a while. Now, in, again, this is all going back to the post-World War II period. It's also a third straight quarterly drop possibly in play. The Dow, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ, you can see all there moving to the downside, except the NASDAQ composite now just a quarter percent to the upside. Ten-year Treasury note yields 3.81%. Believe it or not, that's a slight tick lower. And then we can see a little bit 4.28% for the two-year note yield as well. So... As we talk about the current state of play, there were some folks I was talking to this past weekend, and maybe, Bryn, we'll start with you, this weekend who said things could get ugly on Monday. They're not terribly ugly on Monday, yet the day is not over yet, I understand. But do you feel like there is something in play right now that that we might be near this kind of a bottom, or we keep on talking about it and it keeps going lower? Friday was really panicky, Dom, and... I heard the same narrative on Friday afternoon. Obviously, we're late in September, which is not a good month for the market. Friday was just a pure risk-off risk market, without a doubt. So it's good to see. I mean, the market's down today. You would expect that. It would have been strange if it was up. But it does feel that everyone is incredibly negative for the right reason, by the way. I feel that for the first seven months of the year, every, the majority of people felt that the Fed was kidding and that the Fed really wasn't serious and they really weren't going to do all of these rate hikes. Well, now we know they are not kidding and they're going to do these rate hikes. Whether we need them or not, they seem really dead set on continuing to do them for the next few months. So I think that it will come down to earnings because to me, where I'm, I'm a big believer in not fighting the Fed, and I've talked about that all year long, but what's a little bit positive is over, I mean, 100% of the sell-off this year, Dom, has been multiple contraction. You know, earnings, albeit most of it was from energy, are still positive. And so I think everyone's expecting earnings to come down. And so we'll see what happens. But I do think it's constructive that earnings have been this resilient um, so far, and we're, we're, we're already towards the end of September. You know, it's interesting, Jason, when we talk about uh, Bryn's point here, multiple contraction is no doubt in play. But you could argue that it's legitimate, given the fact that we've seen risk-free rates, Treasury yields climb so much higher right now. 
it changes the calculus, right? If I can get risk-free money backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government and the U.S. taxpayer, yielding right now for two-year note yields, by the way, 4.29%, I maybe don't need to go as much or pay as much in the stock market right now. So to Bryn's point, multiples are in play, but how much of this in your mind is this expectation that earnings may come down, expectations, in the next several months as we head towards the season? Yeah, Dom, I think it's an important point. You know, if I, if I look to earnings in the next couple of weeks and, and look at what's just transpired, as you've already mentioned, I mean, yields are on the run. You know, you have a two-year close to 4.3%. You know, this TINA trade that we've been talking about for a while now, you know, it is, is starting to slow down. I mean, there is opportunities in fixed income, you know, investment grade uh, fixed income, I should say. So for me, though, you know, as we kind of look at the markets going forward, you know, obviously concern around the, the dollar, you know, the dollar's up 18% year to date. You know, there's obviously, as, as Bryn mentioned, you know, the, the Fed is resolute. They are very much engaged. You know, they made a decision on 75 basis points uh, last week. They likely will continue to hike, you know, throughout the, through the end of the year. You know, but the labor market is still strong. So it, it's a mixed bag, you know, as we move forward. We still remain relatively defensive, you know, with healthcare and energy being primary sectors that we like going forward. You know, but, but I do think there's an opportunity for fixed income. And, and as you kind of look at a balanced portfolio going forward, and I think that is something uh, to, to make sure that you pay attention to. Stay patient in this market. You, you, know, you don't need to chase here. You know, there's, there's still a lot of volatility ahead. So that's how we're looking at you know, the markets going forward. You know, Joe, to, to Jason's point, I mean, I'm looking right now at the yield, the dividend yield, so to speak, or the payout yield for high yield junk bond type ETFs. And they're now north of 5%. That's a lot higher than they were just a month or two ago. It makes sense as the prices have come down. But is this attractive? I mean, when you can, and I'm not talking investment grade, that what, what I was referring to is high yield. Investment grade and high yield are now both maybe more attractive instruments for income investors. So does that then mean that there is more downside in the market? Because I can find returns and payouts that are higher up on the capital structure than equity investors. So, Dom, uh, two different conversations that are that are unfortunately tied together by the direction of the market. Let's first take uh, the investor approach to the market right now. The 60-40 portfolio during the course of 2022 has had one of its single worst years in decades. Right now, if you're looking for the value proposition and where it's presenting itself, it's presenting itself in that 40% allocation, whether it's investment grade, municipal bonds, or high yield. So that's a place, given the dislocations, that a long-term investor could gravitate towards right now. The unfortunate conversation right now in the market is directionally, we're trying to figure out, well, are we going to take out the June lows? Are we going to go back to the previous high before the pandemic at 33.93? Or are we potentially going to go down to 3,000? And Don, there's a lot of people that are communicating that to long-term investors. But the problem with that is the very same people that are communicating that, rather, they're the ones that are telling you that's going to be a capitulation moment and that you're going to need to be fast enough because the market is not going to spend a lot of time down there. So I think what it's important to do for longer-term investors focusing on the 60% allocation in their portfolio, Fridays have been an ugly day during the course of a week. Over the next eight weeks, the next eight Fridays before Thanksgiving, put a little money into the equity market, assuming that you don't need cash. If you need cash in the interim, well, then you got to understand you've got challenges right now. The challenges are represented 
by the S&P, which has 68 new 52-week lows today. It's represented by the elevated volatility. It's represented by the fixed income market. And then certainly it's represented by the volatility in the currency market. No, Joe, can I stick with you just for one second? Because this is important because sure. if, if you're looking for a place to make a new investment or add to a position, initiate a new one, trade around an existing one, it does sometimes require that you have the cash or the dry powder. But what about environment right now? I know that you've made some moves in your portfolio here to take advantage of certain other opportunities or just to raise cash in case things get worse down the line. What exactly would you be selling right now to get some of that dry powder? Well, again, do, do you in the interim, do you have a capital need? That's the most important question. And if you do, you have to look at where the market is and where I began my commentary, where I said the direction of the market doesn't matter. And quite honestly, the direction of the market right now, I could tell you, is as difficult as a difficult to navigate and position towards as any time that I have seen since the early part of the pandemic. But from a positioning perspective, recently I removed some of the idiosyncratic stock exposure that I have. I sold out of Goldman Sachs. I sold out of Amgen, a financial and a healthcare stock. Understand, equal to that, I'm putting more money into the Joe T ETF. The Joe T ETF has an overweight towards healthcare, towards financials. So what I'm trying to do, Don, uh, Dom, is to have a more diversified approach, a more diversified approach to those two specific sectors versus having an allocation towards specific individual equities in this elevated volatility environment. That's something I would encourage people to look towards. All right. So, so Jim, I mean, as I'm looking at you here, you've been kind of nodding and shaking your head kind of at the same time as some of these comments. I, I wonder if you look at the way that the, 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 the three prior speakers have kind of positioned themselves in this conversation. There's got to be a, a case to be made here that there is still maybe downside left in this overall market. Are, are there reasons why you'd want to lighten up on positions or, or kind of do what Joe just said, maybe reduce some of that exposure from a kind of diversification perspective and get more into certain areas of like the cash market? Well, a few thoughts here, and there's a lot to sink our teeth into. And uh, certainly the short-term direction in the markets is down. Now, how long that lasts, I don't see anything that really turns that around until we get the earnings season going. And who knows what's going to come from that. I still remain optimism on what I've heard so far, notwithstanding FedEx, that earnings are not going to be anywhere near as bad as people think. Now, to a comment that was made earlier, and I forget if it was Bryn or somebody else, you know, you look where earnings are, and at current levels on the S&P 500, we're trading at 50 15 times forward. However, you have to look at the market as its constituents add up to it. So that 15 times is taking into account that technology still trades at 23 times. Or put another way from the courtesy of our friend Ed Yardeni, if you take out the largest eight stocks uh, in the S&P 500, that multiple drops by a full two turns. I am a price sensitive uh, investor. So I don't own Tesla. I don't own NVIDIA or Amazon. Uh, these are simply two expensive and thus I'm looking at a market that is already pretty darn cheap and pricing in the potential for an earnings decline. Now to the question that you asked, and I wasn't vociferously nodding my head or shaking it one way or the other, but I, I think I like what I heard Joe just say and I'm not sure I fully captured it, but I, I think what he's saying is 
you know, he's selling some of the pricier stocks and looking at some of the cheaper areas of the market. And that's not necessarily just because they're cheap, but because fundamentally going forward, you can see the potential for earnings growth above the market average in the financials, industrials, materials, and energy. Joe, if I, if I misrepresented you, I apologize. So let me just state it from my perspective. I do think that we're in a growth-to-value growth transition right now. And that's painful for people who are used to getting into Apple and Microsoft as the market leaders. They, they may do fine going forward, but I would look for market leadership elsewhere, as I think you're doing, Joe. Jim, I would agree with your, your comments, but I also think from a strategic perspective, and it's important to speak to longer-term investors, not just people or traders that are trying to identify where the market's going to be in the next 15 minutes, because right now, long-term investors are faced with significant challenges. And really, the only behavioral tool they have that they could be utilizing right now is to be diversifying as much as they possibly can in their portfolios whether it's the entirety of a 60-40 allocation or if it's looking more specifically at single sector exposure. And that's what I'm trying to encourage here right now. It's not that you have to pick the one stock within a specific sector where you're going to get the most significant outperformance. Rather, just try and universally allocate towards the sector that you have confidence in. And I think you'll be rewarded on the upside, but more importantly, protect yourself on the downside. So, Bryn, uh, to that point, I, earlier we were talking about this idea, and, and you brought it up, that whether there's kind of like this capitulation-type moment here. We did see a lot of that maybe panic manifest itself late last week, but it didn't seem like there was that real flush-out that happened, right? There seemed to be a bit at the end of the day for some of these stocks and whatnot. We, we, we did at the end of last week have some negative commentary out of David Costin, who's over at Goldman Sachs, the chief equity strategist there, talking about this idea that in a kind of base case scenario, the S&P goes down to 3,600. That's kind of, you know, roughly where the June's, June lows were on an intraday. I believe it was 36, 36 for the S&P. But that in a recessionary scenario, right, 3,150, down 15% or so from those levels back then, if investors price in a hard landing, so to speak. Does that then mean that we should be waiting for that to happen if we think that a recession is inevitable at this point? Two, two things here on, 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 on David's note. What I thought was interesting and so important is that he lowered, they lowered their year-end target for the S&P, but they kept their earnings the same. So their estimate this year is 226 and it's 230 something for next year. And so this is really important for the viewers. It's that it's not that he thought earnings were going to come down. It's that because rates are higher, what multiple do I want to pay for those earnings? And so to me, that's really important. And because we've seen rates go from 25 basis points essentially to four in one year, even if earnings on their estimates didn't come down, the multiple you're going to pay for the market in aggregate needs to come down as well. I think that this whole thesis about, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but that's, I'd like to kind of explore that, the, the reason why is the curious part because you know, we understand the math behind it. We, we can kind of understand what, are the, what the models say that, that multiples should be when you have risk-free rates going higher. But there's got to be a fundamental case, right, as well, that, that you're seeing that, that maybe leads you to feel as though there could be some more downside because of anything from multiple compression to anything else in the marketplace or general risk aversion, just in well, general. Well, so, 
So here's where here's where I where I struggle on on, on really having like draconian pull downs and earnings is if we go into a recession, it's not going to look like the recessions we've had in the past for a couple reasons. First of all, you still have these like three million uh, three million people that are out of the jobs market. And so we have still one point eight jobs open for every unemployed person and wage growth albeit it's still under inflation, that 6% wage growth that we have right now is the highest in 50 years. So you have a really robust job market. I get it's lagging, but at the same time, we're missing a bunch of people from the workforce. At the same time, there's still $1.87 trillion from all that COVID helicopter money that the government gave everybody. And so we're in this really unique time period that we may have a recession. I think growth is going to be very anemic. It's already been anemic. And so to me, what I ask for is not are we going to have a recession? It's what's already priced in. And so I think down here, when we're in this like 3,600, 3,700 range, a lot is priced in. And in October 13th, when we get that next CPI print, if we continue to get lower month over month reads, I think that starts to set the ingredients for a, a bottom to begin in the broader market. All right. And there's a big debate right now about what's going to lead or, or, or kind of contribute to that bottoming process happening right now. Certainly technology. It is rebounding on a relative basis today, but losing some steam coming off its worst two-week stretch since the start of the virus pandemic. This is the tech bounce back that has been all important to the last decade and a half of a market narrative. Anytime there is any kind of a bounce, it is in many of these technology names or technology-adjacent names that are now massive in terms of overall volume. Jason Snipe, I, I turn to you for this because many of these stocks are ones that you would own or that you do own in the portfolio right now. I'm talking about the Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla, Meta type situation. Are these now levels where they become attractive again? Yeah, so I, what I would say about tech, I mean, tech has been a, a great story over the last decade. I mean, rates, rates have been very low. It's been a tremendous environment uh, for tech stocks to run. And obviously with the, re the regime shift, you know, and, and you know, the, this tightening cycle that we're all going through, you know, a lot of these names have, have pulled back. But to your point, Dom, I mean, the multiples have come in some. I do think there's still some more pain there, unfortunately, because as I mentioned earlier, I think the Fed is very much engaged and they'll continue to do what they need to do it, from their perspective uh, to, to stymie my demand and continue to slow the economy. So if you're looking at long duration assets that are relying on the credit markets to grow, I mean, those are the names that will continue to get hurt. But you know, on the, on the mega cap tech side, I still like Apple. I still like Amazon. I still like a lot of these names because of just from the growth prospects. And, and it's all about innovation going forward, in my view. So not to say that I'm jumping in and in, in these names right now, but I still think, you know, going forward over the next couple of months, they'll present some even better opportunities than there are right now to, to jump in or, or potentially nibble. So, Jim, um, you had brought up previously this idea of growth versus value this kind of movement between them the rotation if you will there's no doubt that in 2022 growth has very much out underperformed what's happened with value although i would point out in the last couple of months we've seen a little bit of that kind of reverse course meaning people have taken some of the money away from the value-oriented names like in energy or materials and elsewhere mm -hmm. and then have started now in order to start 
putting maybe money to work on the growth side, and that could be names like Alphabet or Amazon or Apple. Is this the beginning of something bigger, or is this just something where you see it's, it's a noise piece in this whole market narrative and value continues to outperform? No, I think it's serious, and I think the noise is one month of, of one style outperforming the other. You know, if you just go back historically, these growth versus value shifts in leadership last for a decade. Right. The, the 90s were all about growth uh, in the aughts. Growth was left uh, you know, dead on the road. Amazon, Microsoft, these things were left for dead. And it was things like banks, energy that did really well. And then again, that reversed in the 2010s. Now we hear are, are here in the 2020s. And I think we're in the early stages of the transition. It's in part because of the relative differentials between the multiples. It's also no, now, though, we're in a behavioral uh, part of the transition where when people want to tiptoe back into the markets, when they think, maybe the bottom's in. Where do they go? They go to the tried and true favorites of the last decade, the Apples and Microsofts and Amazons of the world. Now, what are they saying? They're saying, listen, I can't get too beat up in these. These are the stalwarts. These are the things that were defensive in the last decade. They've never really been defensive. What they've had is good growth that promoted a multiple expansion that made them see, seem like they just were a no-win, excuse me, no-lose scenario. Now you cannot get multiple expansion from these anymore. If you take a look at Apple, just as an example, 23 times next year's earnings, I don't think that multiple is going to expand. However, its earnings per share growth will be 12%. That's what analysts say for the next several years. So think about Apple now at, I think it's 150. And if you had 12% gain on it from here until the next year, that would put it in the 160 to 170 range. Um, that'd be fine, but I don't think that's what people are going for. On the other hand, if you look at energy, which obviously has come down recently, there's a long-term structural imbalance between supply and demand that can generate much higher earnings per share growth and along with it multiple expansion for these stocks. This is the transition I'm talking about. People need to come to grips with the fact that you're not going to get multiple expansion in what led you into this bear market. You will get multiple expansion from those things that have, have been underperforming for years, but whose earnings per shares are now growing much better than the market overall. Jim, I'm glad you brought up the earnings story as well as Bryn. You guys both brought it up. We're going to address that just a little bit later on in the show because the expectations could change, especially for technology. But coming up on the show now, we've got oil slides sliding below 85 bucks a barrel, energy extending last week's losses as well. Still the worst sector this month, but the best so far this year by a wide margin. So how to play that energy trade into the rest of the year? We've got that trade coming up. Halftime is back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. 
Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, what you just saw right there was a Dow that's just above session lows right now, off about 220-some points. Crude oil is sliding again, now hovering just around 77 bucks a barrel for U.S. benchmark prices. Energy is standing out as the worst-performing sector so far this month, but it's still leading on the year. So let's now trade it. Farmer Jim, we'll start with you. Where do you think energy goes from here? Well, I think it goes higher. I mean, I think first we have to address the fact that it's down is most likely on concerns about a global recession, which we've been hearing just steady drumbeats about. But I think you have to recognize that there is a global imbalance between supply and demand. Before the war in Ukraine, it was thought that oil was going to go well above $100 a barrel. Now you've got a shortage of oil coming out of that. Um, That shortage of oil has been papered over with releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve that is at its lowest level in 40 years. That's going to come Come to an end very soon. And I think when it does, you can start to expect oil uh, to start to move higher. Jim, what's interesting about that is you bring up this, the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I, I want to kind of throw this out now to, to Joe Terranova. Joe, we've talked about or, or, or it's been reported, let's say, let's put it this way, that there was a level and it was 80 bucks for U.S. benchmark West Texas intermediate prices where the Biden administration might look to replenish the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. 80 bucks is now in the rearview mirror. We're down to 77 something. Is there any way that we can find a bottom for crude if we don't believe that there will be a large structural buyer, say like the U.S. government in the in the coming weeks? Dom, I'm trying to be as authentic as I possibly can today because I really believe this is as frustrating an environment since 2008 for all of us. Everyone on the committee, yourself, the viewers of the show, um, this is this is frustrating. It's it's depressing. But let me be clear on energy. OK, the the reality and my prior experience has taught me one thing. We're looking for capitulation in the market. Capitulation in the market generally happens universally. So you might have a very strong supply to demand situation in oil, which I think everyone on this show would advocate as it relates to supply we are supply challenge for energy. But guess what? Just like month to date, as you cited, energy is down 13% and it's the worst sector. Energy is not going to be immune from a liquidation capitulation type of moment for the overall market. And I think it's important for investors to understand that because sometimes the fundamentals, they just don't matter. So if President Biden and his administration talk about filling the SPR at $80, that's not a reason for someone right now to step in front of what clearly is a sector that's being used as a source of funds and take the other side of that. If you want to learn long-term, maintain exposure to energy on the supply-demand thesis, that's fine. But I think it's important to understand the environment that you're in right now and try and convey in some possible way, how is it that oil can be down 13% in the worst performance for a sector in the month of September. That doesn't seem logical, but it's not logical 
because we've separated the fundamentals from the pricing in the market. All right. Speaking of fundamentals, Bryn, I, you know, you, you're on the record and you've been a proponent of energy for quite some time here. It's probably still, I believe, the biggest part of your portfolio right now. And it's diversified across not just upstream, but downstream names as well. Has any of the price action recently changed your investment thesis about energy or is this still the place to be in the coming weeks and months? And if so, where? Well, well, first of all, I mean, I, I live in Texas. I grew up in Texas. So it's a volatile asset class and it's not for the faint at heart. It never has been. And so I think the way to play it right now, what I've been doing for the past few months is continuing to sell calls against my positions that I own, like XOP, Viper, Devon, because to Joe's point, the volatility and the sentiment is so hot. The sentiment is so low and the volatility is so high. You can take those core positions, which I'm going to continue to own because of all the fundamental reasons Jim said, but I'm going to trade for the market that I have, not for the market I want, and continue to sell calls against those individual names. So what's interesting is I had calls on pretty much every energy name I own. And Friday was so brutal. I got the opportunity to buy those back and close those out because they had sold off that the calls had come down in value. So I think that you find companies in the space, you know, like a Devon has a free cash flow yield of close to 16% versus the S&P is four. I like XOP as an ETF. Um, Viper has a 8% distribution yield. And then you can sell calls to collect extra income is the way to play it. Because I do think there's a lot of tourist capital and there are also a lot of hedge funds and algos that are playing this. And make no mistake, if the market feels like we're going to go into a global recession that's that's deeper than what's priced in, oil will be a, a risk off market. Absolutely. Because that's just how it trades. But longer term, the supply demand will ultimately reveal itself through good earnings and good fiscal discipline by the energy companies. All right. I would say that tourist capital does get shaken out pretty quickly when it comes to a market downturn. So we'll see if that happens mm -hmm. this time around. All right. Uh, before we get anywhere any further, I want to call your attention right now to what's happening with the markets, because it is now complete right across the board. And the reason why it's important right now is because with the Dow down 273 points, the S&P down 33 points and the Nasdaq down 47 points. It may not seem like a lot, fractional, but these are now the lows of the session. And you recall the Nasdaq Composite was up over a percent at one point earlier this morning. So it's been a significant deterioration in the markets from the highs that we saw in the first half of the trading day so far. And by the way, the Russell 2000 small cap index, a more economically sensitive index, if you will, down about 1.2% at this point. They're down about 18, 19 points. So we'll keep an eye on that. Let's now get to the headlines with Bertha Coombs. She's here with a news update. Hi, Bertha. Hi, Don. Thanks very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. A gunman with a swastika on his T-shirt killing 15 people at a school in central Russia. 11 children are among the dead, with over 20 of the 24 people injured also being children. According to Russian investigators, the unidentified gunman died by suicide on the scene. The shooting occurred about 600 miles east of Moscow, a motive not immediately clear. Hurricane Ian is moving near the Cayman Islands and closer to western Cuba as it is now on track to hit Florida as a Category 4 hurricane later this week. Authorities in Florida are beginning to issue voluntary evacuation orders for some low-lying areas, with mandatory evacuation orders expected to be issued tomorrow. Hurricane Ian is also forcing NASA to 
further delay its anticipated uh, Artemis 1 launch by several weeks. NASA will roll the space launch system rocket and Orion spacecraft back to its assembly building for safety as Hurricane Ian continues to intensify and threaten parts of Florida. Stars have just not aligned for that launch, Don. All right, I see what you did there. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much for that. Straight ahead on the show, the latest trends in ETF investing. And coming up on Wednesday, Halftime Report. This show will be live from the most powerful investment conference and event of the year. It's CNBC's Delivering Alpha. Just scan the QR code that you see on your screen right there to register and join the in-person event. Back in New York City, in person for the same time, from the same time since the pandemic started. A lot of big speakers there. We're live from that show. Don't miss it. Halftime returns after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Active traders always say they can do better in a volatile market, but they're usually wrong. They don't do better, but not this year. Active managers, particularly large cap active managers, are having their best year against their benchmarks and against passive since 2009. That's according to a new study by S&P Dow Jones Indices. Let's bring in the author of that report, Anu Ganti. She's the senior director of index investment strategy at S&P Dow Jones Indices. And Anu, 51% of large cap fund managers underperform their benchmarks the first half of the year. That doesn't sound very good, 51% underperform, but it's the best since 2009 on average about 68 percent of large cap managers underperform so it's good what are active managers doing right this year well we've seen relatively better underperformance this year and you're right there's a few key reasons number one is rising dispersion or the spread among returns in an index and the greater that spread is the greater the opportunity to add value from stock selection it can also magnify the risk of picking a lagger so there was plenty of opportunities to add value Plenty of opportunities for embarrassment. Number two is the underperformance of mega caps that we've seen, which could help active portfolios that are closer to equal than cap weighted. And finally, value outperformed after decades of underperformance. So these are all key reasons why we saw some potential tailwinds in this declining market. You know, I've been reading this study for almost 20 years. This is one of the things S&P is famous for, their study of active managers. They've been doing it for more than 20 years, but the results generally are pretty poor. Regardless of this year, after five years, these are amazing numbers. 84% of large cap active managers underperformed the benchmark after 10 years, 90% underperformed. Look at these numbers. What accounts for this astounding underperformance? Can we make any conclusions? You've been doing this study almost 25 years. I'll give you three reasons. Number one is cost, right? Active managers generally have higher costs than passive managers. So right off the bat, they're starting off with a higher hurdle, a higher yardstick. Two is a concept called skewness, where equity returns, most of them, tend to be driven by a few winners, and that can hinder more concentrated active portfolios. And finally, the professionalization of the industry. Investment management is a zero-sum game, as there's no natural source of outperformance. And if you look back to the 1960s and 1970s versus now, it's been dominated by professional investors competing against each other, and it's that much harder to to generate that alpha. It makes sense when you explain it that way. Now, we're going to have a lot more on the active
active versus passive investing debate with Anu. And Tom Light, he's the founder and vice chairman of Vetify. That's coming up at 1 p.m. Eastern time on ETF Edge. A lot more on why the future is unknowable. We'll dig deeper into that fundamental problem of stock forecasting. What is it about the future that is so difficult to figure out? And is there a way to get around that? Maybe. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime returns right after this. All right. Right now, this is the LODs, some traders call them, right? Some traders call it the lows of the day, LOD. It's 311 points right now over a percent loss now for the Dow Industrials, 29,278 the last trade there. The S&P is 36.56, so that's 20 points right now above the June intraday lows, which a lot of traders are still looking at right now. The S&P is now down 1%. It's a half a percent decline, 60 points for the composite that Nasdaq index is now at 10,807. The reason why that's important is because a half percent loss right now is coming from what was a one plus percent gain intraday just earlier on and the Russell 2000 session lows as well. Also want to call your attention to what's happening with the 10 year Treasury note yield. They are continuing to move higher. We thought that we might get some stability just around the top of the noon hour, as you can see there. But then from there, things just started moving higher and higher. And now it's moving to the upside markedly so. 3.86%. This does represent the cycle high right now. This is just about the same time we saw some of the losses accelerate in the equity markets overall. So those rising yields still playing a big part in that overall market story. Uh, again, session lows for the stock market right now. The Nasdaq down about a half percent, down about 57 points, the down off about 318 at this stage. Uh, coming up next on the show, no, actually, no. Let, let's just get to Joe Terranova really quickly here with regard to just the overall market narrative mm-hmm. on what's happening. Because what we're looking at right now is a whole slew of, I guess, 52-week lows on the overall market. What we're yeah. seeing right now is a whole bunch of them in technology, even more in real estate. So this is very much an interest rate yeah. story at this point. Yeah, Don, before we had this conversation surrounding technology, and, and I, I thought it was giving a, a little false sense of comfort to the market when you really went underneath and looked at technology Right now, you've got currently 88 new 52-week lows for the S&P 500. As you said, 16 of them in technology. But these are just not, you know, the non-profitable companies. These are companies that a lot of viewers own. I own some of these names, and you'd be interested in. So you have an AMD, which I've done horribly in. That's a 52-week low. Adobe, Intel, LAM Research, MasterCard, Visa, Oracle. I look at MasterCard and Visa. Those are two names of interest to me. Well, for longer term investors, maybe that's something you want to put some cash into. Communication services, you've got Verizon, you've got AT&T, Paramount, and Facebook making another 52-week low in financials, AIG, City, Capital One, USB, Energy, One Oak. That's a name I've talked about on air. Horrible call on my part. It's a 52-week low. So I would study these 52-week lows. Again, if you have some cash you could put into the market there, you'll be able to find some names within here that you could add to your portfolio. But overall, this is indicative of a market that's still under pressure in the near term, Don. All right. S&P 500 now down 39 points to session lows. Coming up next for the show, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. And for Hispanic Heritage Month, CNBC is celebrating our teammates and contributors. Here is Patty Martell right from here on this halftime report. CNBC supervising producer Patty Martell will be back after this. There's a saying in Spanish, ponte las pilas. It literally translates to put in your batteries. And I wanted to fire up the next generation of Latinos and Latinas. 
so we continue to build on the work of so many that persevered before us. Embrace your heritage and your Latinidad. We are all Hispanic, but we are diverse. We eat different foods and wave different flags, yet we are bonded by a shared history. We are bicultural. Let's own it. It's our superpower. Okay, welcome back to the Halftime Report. Stocks right now are at session lows, and we'll again tell you what the state of play is right now. If you take a look at the major indices here, the Dow is now down oh, just roughly 275 points, so off the session lows. But the S&P is down 32, and the Nasdaq Composite down half of 1%, 45 points to the downside. Uh, senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli joins us now for the NYSE with his midday word. And, Mike, a new note now just dropping from J.P. Morgan's, JP Morgan's Marco Kalanovic saying that Fed hawkishness has left stocks very oversold. That's the headline. And in that content, in in that context, he says that some preconditions for a market bottom are falling into place. Stocks are looking increasingly cheap and approaching deep value outside the U.S. and positioning is extremely depressed. Can you help us reconcile that commentary with some of the positivity that we saw earlier in the session and then the fall that we're seeing now? Well, I do think we came into the week, Dom, with, without a doubt, the oversold conditions building up. I see them. You see them. We all see them. The question is, uh, are they going to actually uh, get a response from, from the market? So, we, you know, a typical retest playbook in an oversold market is you kind of don't want to see uh, a half-hearted, modest bounce in the morning. You want to see the rubber band get pulled back a little bit. That seems to be what's happening now. Sometimes it snaps. More often than not, it eventually creates a little bit of a, of a reflex bounce. That's what Marco is pointing to, a lot of the kind of extreme negative breath and things like that. I wouldn't say in every respect it's as washed out as it was back in the mid-June lows, but it's getting there. It's in the zone uh, of something like that. I think one of the issues is beyond that, beyond just looking at the, the technical setup, the macro picture is not offering a whole lot of daylight in whatever direction that you look. The dollar index is up 5% in a week. That is a monstrous move. It's not yet really taking a breather. Obviously, the global yield story is similar. So once those things perhaps burn up whatever upside fuel they have in the very short term, then uh, we probably have a little more of a, a basis for something more than just that uh, reflex bounce. Marco, as you know, you know, he's been bullish for a while, been trying to say tactically now things are in place for some kind of a low. Uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see if that happens. We all know that the seasonals, too, they're not so great this week, but they start to improve thereafter. What I do know for sure is it looks like you guys are going to have a fun afternoon trying to track everything down that's going on oh, here yes. between the bull case and the bear case. Mike Santoli, we'll see you later on on the closing bell. Yeah. The S&P 500 on track for a third straight quarter of declines. Almost everything is down at this point, almost. But there are some areas of the market still working quite nicely. We'll tell you what those are, where to play them, how to play them from here. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. While much of the market has sold off recently, there are some areas that are still working. Consumer discretionary is one of them, the best performing sector on a relative basis today and this quarter. It's up 8%. Jim, we'll take specific examples. Wind Resorts, you own this stock. It's surging on this Macau reopening news. They're going to let residents of China from five very important provinces start going back with fewer restrictions. Is it enough to justify this move higher? Well, I think... 
I think it is, but I th- this has been a very frustrating stock, very frustrating stock. I mean, I've thought for quite some time that it should trade around 100 just based on the U.S. operations, which, which continue to go gangbusters. Um, but there's this perpetual fear of a recession that's weighing on the shares. If you believe what I just said, then that would imply that the Macau operations are a zero premium call option based within the stock. Now you're seeing some value to that come out, um, as, the, as you just pointed out, that Macau opens up a little bit. I think there's more room to run here, but longtime viewers know that I'm more optimistic on the U.S. economy than the market overall. All right. I mean, there certainly moves Jason Snipe. I, I know that one of your stocks is MGM. Can you take us through that? It's, it's an underperformer versus some of these guys today, especially Melco Crown, big operations in Macau, win in Las Vegas Sands. MGM's your pick. Why? Yeah, so MGM, you know, t- to your point, Dom, is, has obviously underperformed the market. It's, it's down 32% year to date. It's an expensive stock as well. It's trading at 54 times. But uh, what I would say about MGM, and to Jimmy's point, I mean, Macau has been important. I mean, it, it's been an important story with through the pandemic with opening and closures, you know, overseas. And uh, MGM only has 12.5% um, exposure overseas. So I think that's what's played well with the stock. That's also why it's not jumping with the rest of them today. But for me, I really like iGaming. I think the sports gaming uh, industry is an opportunity and catalyst for the stock. So that's why we own it. And I think, you know, could still continue to move from here. All right. Volatility on China news over there for Macau. Thank you very much, guys. Final trades are coming up next on the Halftime Report. Keep it right here. Stocks are trying to bounce off session lows right now. All right, welcome back. Be sure to tune into a CNBC special, The Fed Factor, tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. Brian Sullivan will be joined by a panel of experts to look at how the Federal Reserve and interest rates are impacting your money in a very significant way. Now let's get over to final trades. Jim Labenthal, we will start with you. You know, we were touching on discretionary stocks earlier and talking about casinos. Actually, for the last three months, discretionary stocks have held up pretty well. And so you look at the last three months for General Motors as an example. It's basically flat, up about half a percent while the market's down. Um, I think there's a reason for that strength. It's undervalued with good demand. So General Motors is my final trade. All right, GM Bryn Talkington. I like the wind trade. I do think that China will reopen after the election, which starts next month. So I'm going to buy win, but then I'm going to sell the January 7750 calls. And you can collect around $5 for four months. So it's about 7.5% yield. Plus, you still have about 15% upside if it were to move there and get called away. I like it. A pair trade. I like it, too. Yeah, interesting. Jason Snipe. Yeah, I like Honeywell here. They had a really strong report, uh, earnings report, low double-digit earnings growth, solid uh, balance sheet. I, I like this company here in a diversified end market, so I think it's an opportunity. All right, and Joe Terranova. Dom, I froze before, but on consumer discretionary and the strong quarter-to-date performance, keep in mind Tesla's driving that up 23%. Final trade, consumer staple, Hershey. Everyone loves chocolate. Everyone loves chocolate. All right. Thanks very much for the final trades there. That does it for the halftime report. Let's check on what's happening with the markets right now because the Dow is down 211 points. It's bad, but not as bad as it was. Remember, we were down 300 within this past hour. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. 
while what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.